0: Conspiracy show with Richard Seren from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome
1: to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg. Grab a stool and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. And greetings from Kalamata in the Peloponnese region of Greece. Uh, this program is not live uh, because of the uh, the time zone difference—seven hours between Toronto and Greece. So I've pre-recorded this show earlier today. Uh, I landed in Athens October 12th and was planning on spending more time in the, in Athens, but uh, had to come south uh, suddenly to Kalamata after some severe weather reports of flooding down here. I needed to check out the uh, condition of the house, which sits on the side of a mountain and overlooks the Bay of Messenia. Uh It turns out all is well here. No water damage, no flooded basement, So I'll be heading back up to Athens in the next couple of days, and then I'll return here to uh, Kalamata uh, and stay until November the 9th. Now, next week on the program, guest host Donald Jeffries will be here, the author of Hidden History, Survival of the Richest, and Crimes and Cover-Ups in American Politics. Uh, Again, he'll be guest hosting, and he'll speak with investigative journalist at large, Janet Phelan, about her explosive new book, at the breaking point of history, how decades of U.S. duplicity enabled the the pandemic. In the second hour, Don will interview a former employee and blackjack dealer at the legendary Dunes Hotel and Casino. And he'll talk about the hotel and casino's origins, its connections to the mob, and some of the celebrities and wonderful characters who frequented the Dunes Hotel in its heyday. Micah Hanks is here for Hour One. Micah, a frequent guest host on Coast to Coast AM, a writer, researcher, producer. He'll be here to discuss a recent trip to Brazil to study the UFO phenomena down there and the state of UFO disclosure in America. In the second hour, author, martial artist, survivalist, Stefan Verstappen will be here to discuss a very important subject, How to Form Communities in times of social disorder. Carlos Kajina is my technical producer, and Ryan White is my live stream producer. Since an early age, Micah Hanks has held a long fascination with the more unique scientific mysteries the world has to to offer. A self-proclaimed but not self-righteous skeptic, Micah works as a writer and researcher as well as a radio personality whose work addresses a variety of unexplained phenomena. He's the author of several books, including Magic, Mysticism, and the Molecule, Reynolds Mansion, An Invitation to the Past, and The UFO Singularity. Micah Hanks, how are you? It's been forever.
2: It does seem like it's been forever. Uh, Probably not quite that long, but again, I guess what they say in this business and really in life in general uh, distance makes the heart grow fonder, right? So I love being here. Great to be talking with you, Richard. Likewise, likewise. The Micah Hanks program, how do we listen? Well, you can find me, of course, there at Micahanks dot com. I've uh, undertaken this Herculean effort over the last few years to try and consolidate everything and have it all there at one site. And so, I've got a lot of different enterprises, but you'll find all of it there at Micahhanks dot com. You're kind of a a psychonaut, in my
1: estimation, and what I mean by that is we have outer space, of course, and I know you're very interested in exploring. Uh, the UFO phenomenon and ETs and and uh, and space in general, the science involved in exploring outer space, but also I, I I look at you as an explorer of inner space. What are your thoughts?
2: I appreciate that uh, notion. Actually, I guess for anyone who's unfamiliar with that expression, psychonaut. Uh, I would, of course, say I think you got the psycho part right. No, I'm kidding. But you know, for anyone who is unfamiliar with that, it's, this generally entails a person who explores consciousness. But often, it is suggestive of you know using substances or something, entheogens, God-releasing uh, molecules. and and substances and things along those lines, which really, in the anthropological sense of things, is something that people have done for thousands and thousands of years. Now, I actually generally don't do that. I am a pretty straight-laced guy. Uh, The uh, strongest drug I is coffee, Richard. (laughs) But I am very interested in the idea of consciousness. Right, yeah. I'm very interested in consciousness, altered states of consciousness, meditation, these kinds of things. And I also think that throughout history, there are a lot of interesting aspects of psychology that come out in our mythologies, in our, you know, folklore, and in, of course, religious traditions. These things all fascinate me. And there is a bit of a parallel to the more scientific, tangible side of my interest, which is really where my focus is primarily these days with all of the UFO talk, and I'm sure we'll get into plenty of that in a moment, if we look throughout history... I would contend that people have whatever UFOs may represent, or UAP, unidentified aerial phenomena, as the military here in the States prefers to call them these days, and that actually is an expression that's been used for quite some time to describe these phenomena, but whatever they may be. And I think that there are a lot of things that they actually represent. I think that there's a time honored human experience of looking into the sky, and seeing things that we can't identify. And then trying to reckon with that, reckon with the possibilities. And so often in the ancient past, when people saw unidentified aerial phenomena, they did relate to it in religious terms. Now, an astronomer today might look back in some of those cases and say, well, now with you know a Stellarium program, we can look back, we can chart exactly what was in the sky at that time. And looking due east from said city, we know this observer hundreds of years ago was looking at the conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter. And it would have looked incredible in the sky and very unusual to them, very bright. No doubt, that's what they were looking at. I don't think that's always the There are still some unexplainables that are recorded throughout history, which are intriguing, even if we'll never really know what they were. But what we do know is that people would often have these experiences of seeing those objects and say, angels, God, a sign, a portent, a prodigy. They've been called many things throughout time, but again, that mystical side of the human experience of seeing something we don't understand and then trying to ascribe agency to it and to come to terms with it almost in a religious way, that is very real and it's still very real today as part of the modern UFO experience in many ways. We may have replaced the name, angels and demons may now be aliens you know, or Russia or China, depending on who you're asking, but the time-honored experience of we saw something, we don't know what it is, let's speculate, lives on. You wrote about this previously in Magic Mysticism and the Molecule,
1: and I guess you were touching on the molecule earlier when we were talking about certain methods of achieving these altered states, whether it's a DMT or ayahuasca, but what do you mean by the molecule?
2: You're right on right there in the way that you phrased that. I actually mean, and in the title of the book, Magic Mysticism and the Molecule, I'm looking at, again, the idea in ancient times, prior to science, okay, in pre-scientific, in fact, actually prehistoric times, people who would engage in ritual practices in an effort to try and bend nature to their will. Mysticism is, as time goes on, people begin to ask deeper questions about, well, what is really going on? Uh, Who am I? What is me? I mean, what does it mean to be alive? And we look at the esoteric traditions And the philosophies that began to kind of grow out of these sorts of practices, religious practices as well. And then we also look at something that, as we mentioned earlier, very ancient. The idea of inducing an altered state of consciousness chemically, using any number of different what are often termed entheogenic or God-releasing molecules, but they're actually usually found in plants. One of the most well-known today is ayahuasca or yage. Again, Amazonian shaman have used for centuries, thousands of years in fact, and there's anthropological evidence that archaeologists have actually uncovered that substantiates the idea that this has been used for a long time, but different chemical compounds that are capable of inducing an altered state, which also gives us a glimpse of the other side of reality. And this, of course, a part of religious or mystical practices uh, that such groups have used That's really what the name of the book is talking about. The reason I was interested in altered states of consciousness is, but again, in addition to the idea of UAP being a time-honored human experience, the human pursuit of questions as to whether we are alone in the universe, most would think of in terms of our modern eddy programs, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And again, it's pretty obvious probably to the listener, I'm fascinated with the idea of here's how now with science and the tools that science provides us, but many of us throughout time have asked similar questions. We went about trying to find answers in different ways. And so from an anthropological perspective, I'm really interested in the idea of ritual, mystical practices, and the use of entheogens by different indigenous groups in parts of the world to essentially ask a lot of the same questions. Are we alone in the universe? Are there other experiences with non-human intelligences that can be reached? And what can we learn about ourselves through trying to reach these things? Now, again, the modern scientists would probably say that these experiences— like, for instance, if one goes to the Amazon and they take ayahuasca and they have a powerful visionary experience as the dimethyltryptamine is coursing through their veins and they are you know, seeing these kaleidoscopic visual hallucinations, again, a scientist today would say, and that's exactly what that is. It's a hallucination. I would nonetheless maintain maybe we can still learn some things about ourselves, but traditional perspectives – Uh, in contrast to the modern scientific attitude, would look at that differently. They would say, we may be able to commune with our ancestors, we may be able to commune with other intelligences, or perhaps even the intelligence of the plant itself. So anthropologically, I'm fascinated with that human pursuit of not only whether we're alone in the universe and whether there are other forms of intelligence, but what we can learn about ourselves through those kinds of pursuits. Obviously,
1: countless people have had experiences with the unknown, the paranormal, supernatural, otherworldly, without the use of ayahuasca. How do we explain that? Does that DMT molecule or some other agency exist in all of us in significant amounts to allow for experiences or what they used
2: to call, you know, the age of miracles? Yeah, that's a great question, Richard. Uh, I'll preface my answer by saying that, you know, in recent months, actually recent weeks, I traveled to South America. And it had been my intention, actually, while there, to try to, uh, in a very controlled setting uh, with the União de Vegetal Church there in Brazil, I had hoped to actually partake in ayahuasca uh, to have a bit of this experience myself. Now, with the concerns about COVID 19, um, that was not available. During the period I was there, and I hope in the future when I return to Brazil, a place I definitely hope to spend time in the future, uh, that this will be something that's available. Again, I'm not a recreational user of substances by any means, despite my love for coffee, uh, but I'm interested in the what you might call the ethnobotanical and the anthropological side of all this. But despite having actually had no real experience al- along those lines myself while, I was, while uh, I was there, on my way back from Brazil— an interesting thing happened. Uh, And this coming back to the question of, does DMT exist in our bodies? Are there ways that with or without a chemical substance inducing that experience, similar experiences can be achieved? First, yes, DMT does exist in our bodies. Um, That is part of what kind of got me into this area of research and what interests me about it. And yes, there are some ways that practitioners of mystical arts have said that it may be capable of inducing what one would call a endogenous mystical experience by perhaps tapping into the endogenous release of or control of the production of those chemicals within the body quick example on the back from brazil as i was flying along of course you know up all day sleep well on traveling across the atlantic recently and maybe you're like me richard when i'm on a plane Everybody around me is asleep in the middle of the night, and I'm the one guy who's sitting there reading the UO because, you know, sitting upright in a, in a plane, even if I've got the seat all the way back, I just don't sleep. And as I'm flying along, I've got my, you know, my um uh, visor on, you know, so everything's blacked out. I've got my earplugs in. Only the engines is making its way through. There's sensory deprivation where there's very little sound, no light or imagery. And all of a sudden, as I'm sitting there very awake, very tired… And in this sensory-deprived state, I see a plant. This plant appears to be under a red light. Now, this is, of course, just my mind, probably on the verge of entering a dreaming state or, interestingly, what one might even call a lucid dreaming state. And I'm looking at this plant, looking, you know, I put up air quotes, this is all in my mind, but I'm like, oh, that's a very vivid image in my mental space of this plant. Let's see where this goes. And as I'm sitting there, you know, with my nightshade on and with my earplugs and you know i just focus on this plant and then suddenly i began to see these kaleidoscopic kind of images and then i began to see faces very very distinctive eyes this is all just happening as i'm sitting there very tired on a plane flying over south america in the middle of the night uh when i should have been looking out the window probably trying to observe uap right but it was fascinating to me that some of the dreamlike imagery that my mind is producing is very similar to what people describe when they have taken something like ayahuasca. And I was just fascinated by this. I have to say I've never really had quite such a unique uh, and and truly psychedelic kind of experience. And I wonder if, you know, altitude, uh, you know, again, the century deprivation, whatever it might have been in this circumstance that was conducive to having this experience. But I was really fascinated that and, – and, and again, it seemed to say to me that, yeah, I, perhaps under the right circumstances, there are ways that we can tap into that. But again, to your point, yeah, DMT, dimethyltryptamine, is actually produced in the body. Uh, Dr. Richard Strassman actually did a number of, or Rick Strassman, as he is known, he did a number of DEA-approved studies back in the 1990s with DMT to try and understand those dynamics himself. And so, yeah, he also was told by some of the participants in that study that they had through meditation and things like this, in similar experiences, and those patients also incidentally had a greater tolerance to the DMT when they were actually uh, given that substance during this study. So I found that interesting, and indeed some would say that, yeah, you can have that experience without having to have any kind of, you know, uh, induced element. You can actually tap into that somehow internally, endogenously.
1: Isn't it interesting? I mean, you and I, people, listeners will have to take my word for it, but you and I did not do a pre-interview. I had no idea that just barely two weeks ago you set out on this journey. And yet that was sort of my lead-in question. Isn't that interesting that somehow, I don't know, that you would have that experience, as I say, two weeks ago. And, and here we are discussing it without our having a prior discussion. So what happened when you finally arrived and went to Brazil?
2: i think that the entire time i was there i'm very uh, interested in Jungian psychology and of course carl jung gave us many things and he gave us a lot of wonderful terminology that's still recognized in modern psychoanalysis and really really even outside of that but synchronicity was a term that he coined and the entire time i was there in brazil there was a lot of synchronicity and uh, here again it's no surprise that you would lead off with those questions and that would bring us to where we are right now uh, indeed very intuitive on your part highly synchronistic i'm kind of getting used to that these days richard <laughs> while i was there uh, was twofold i had an opportunity to go down and visit this wonderful country that i would never been to i speak a modicum of portuguese because back at, uh, in the uh latter part of 2019 prior to covid 19 a friend and i actually traveled to portugal and uh that was a wonderful experience and i gave myself a crash course in very basic portuguese when i went and learned a little more while i was there kept working with it and so i thought well this is you know useful i can go to brazil uh, again their dialect is a little different but i know just enough portuguese to get around all the people i'm with speak very good english and so that's you know an even better situation but uh, i went down spent a few days in Cuitiba in southern brazil then we traveled up to brasilia the federal capital rented cars and uh, my company and i drove about three hours out into the uh beautiful uh, and it's actually a unesco world heritage site but it's known as the chapada dos viaderos now my friends had planned this trip already but when it became a possibility for me to actually go down to brazil and visit them they had said you'll want to come with us because this area in addition to being a unesco world heritage <laughs> national park there in brazil It is known for its UFO sightings. And so when we arrive in the little town of Alto Parizu, it was fascinating because everything is alien. I mean, there's a hotel with a flying saucer out front. Uh, All the little shops have crystals and aliens, even uh, very, very lifelike alien statues in many cases outside in front of these shops. There's a restaurant across the street called Area 51 And I was kind of amazed at just how much alien or allianisianos, as they would say, uh, have become a part of that culture and have been integrated. It's, It's not unlike maybe some of the, I guess, the vibe that you would get in a town like Sedona, Arizona, for those who have been there. But on the actual experiential side of things, people in that town have said for years that they have seen UFOs. One story. It had been published in the Brazilian UFO magazine, and uh, again, you know, one of the best U- uh, UFO researchers there in Brazil, A.J. Javard, yes. has written about this and others. But the uh, Brazilian UFO magazine actually talked about an instance there where years ago, a group of people there in Chapada had gone, this right near the town where we were staying in Alto Parizu, they had gone on this hike up to a abandoned mine. And again, Chipata is known for its crystals. There's an anecdote that back in the 1960s, NASA uh, contacted scientists around that region and said, why is it so bright? You know, in the satellite imagery, it's so bright down there. And one idea had been that abundance of quartz might have actually raised the albedo and given it a brighter appearance on the landscape. So there's a lot of crystals. And you can actually go out into the waterfalls and the creeks and the rivers and find these. But they had gone up to a crystal mine. And on the way back, one of the women in the party vanished she had been talking with a journalist and then she just vanishes and everyone says where is she and so they go looking for the woman and they spend several hours trying to find her and after several hours they finally have to go back into alto Parizo and get help from the police and so they bring policia back up and they're looking around and then they see off in the distance after three hours richard a woman stand up from the ground uh, some distance away and she begins walking toward them and there she was and so they said don't where have you been and she said, I don't remember. She said, the last thing I remember was I looked up and I saw a bright light, and I began to follow it. But she had bruises all over her body and had no recollection of where she had been. So stories like this are often told there in town. But incidentally, on our way in, we were driving in at night after flying all day. And as we're driving in, uh, my, uh, one of my uh, traveling companions, Rafaela, who's in the front seat in front of me, I'm in the back seat of the car. We're both looking out the right Uh, to the right, out the window, and we see a little blue light moving along through the sky. She had been watching it for a second. I turn, I look, I see it. About the time she says, what is that? It just blanks out. Now, again, the skeptic in me might say, satellite. I'm not sure, but it's not unlike the kinds of lights that many people have said that they see there. So, again, it was a journey into the heart of mystery, and it got weirder while we were there. (laughs) Well, we'll we'll pick it up on the
1: other side, and we'll... uh discuss your strange been wonderful journey in brazil south america micah hanks my guest researcher writer psychonaut blogger podcaster back with more of the conspiracy show in just moments my name is richard sarah don't go away <laughs> Micah Hanks stays with us. So you mentioned you went down to Brazil. Your mission was twofold. One was to explore this UFO phenomenon. and, And it's interesting how much more open even the mainstream media and the government and the military in terms of transparency is about what's happening down there. Anything else UFO related without obviously giving everything away in the upcoming podcast anything else happen
2: certainly and we can talk about that i'll briefly say again i didn't actually do the ayahuasca while i was there because of the situation with COVID 19 it was deemed a little unsafe uh i was very glad though that when i went down there and there were certain dangers involved i am a fully vaccinated american i realize a lot of people you know have different feelings about that we won't get into that right now but um I did that, of course, knowing that I was going to be traveling, and uh, I wanted the assurance of any protection I could have. But the Centers for Disease Control, of course, recognized Brazil at the time that I traveled there as a level four, that means do not travel. And when I got there. I'm, I'm happy to say that again, they their their health and safety standards were just some of the best I've seen anywhere that I've gone. And uh, incidentally, they were actually. Brought down to a level three, reconsider travel while I was there, so again, that much was evident. I was not surprised to see that that level brought down because I mean they are really doing I think the best job they can down there, as so many are, but there still were some concerns, and that of course pre- prevented me from doing all the things I hoped to do while I was there, and I hope to go back down. At some point in the future, and pursue those. But the other reason I was there actually was I love to travel. I love culture. I love language. I love cuisine. I love you know anthropology. Obviously, is something that I, you know I'm fascinated by, and the opportunity to visit a UNESCO World Heritage site. Whether or not people see UFOs there, that was certainly something that uh, drew my attention then. And of course, the wonderful company Rafaela and Fernanda Conjadu, all the fine pe- people I was staying with. Wonderful people, wonderful culture, wonderful, you know, uh, time. But back on the UFO side of things, uh, indeed, while we were there, I was struck by the fact that as we, you know, you have to hire a guide to go into parts of the Chapada dos Villaderos. And many people, I think, when I was headed down, I told friends and going to Brazil, everybody, first, they're in Ukraine, right it's not time to travel. But again, I, I took out two health insurance policies just to be on the safe side. And again, everything was Great and so well managed while I was there, didn't have any problems at all. But The other side of it, of course, too, was that uh, people were thinking, "Oh, you're going to be in the jungle. You're going to be like Amazon. the Chapada is not a jungle. In fact, most would compare it more to the African savanna. But it is renowned for its waterfalls. And when you get down into these areas, the are. It does have what I would call very, very similar to a you know rich deciduous, lots of ferns and palms and things like that. The other thing that I noticed, and this really fascinated me, in addition to anthropology, I really love geology. While I worked for a long time, know that I spend a lot of time volunteering on archaeology sites. If you're going to know archaeology, you need to know a good bit about geology, too. And the granitic uh, rock, the abundance of quartz that I saw throughout the parts of the Chippata that we visited, immediately caught my attention. And one reason why is because another place I had been that looked similar to this area— And where you'll also find an abundance of granite and a whole lot of quartz is the Linville Gorge in North Carolina, just about an hour away from me, Richard. And in fact, just across the valley from the Linville Gorge is, of course, the famous Brown Mountain, another UFO hotspot because there are strange lights that have been seen there for at least decades, maybe centuries. It struck me that it was so similar. An appearance here, but as we're hiring our guide and he's taking us down to uh, this particular portion of the Shapada, we go through this little kind of way that's a sort of mock village setup. And they have all of these little uh, religious um, iconography and, and things like this little almost scarecrow type people. We walk into this little area where you can get filtered water, and there are strings of garlic hanging from the ceiling. Now, most people who have ever watched a vampire film, you know, they're familiar with Universal. Uh, recognition of garlic as being a way to ward off spirits. There are brooms with crystals attached to them. No, no doubt there are some of the indigenous uh, Chapada crystals uh, attached to these brooms. And so I was struck by the fact that there are all of these charms and things. And I'm thinking, what are they trying to ward off? As we trudge deeper into the Chapada, Rafaela uh, begins to ask, uh, speaking in Brazilian Portuguese, of course, ask our guide, have you ever seen anything unusual yourself? And sure enough, he tells us on one occasion, I'd been driving my pickup late at night, and a blue light showed up, and it followed me for close to 20 minutes down the highway. And he said that it followed me, and I didn't know what it was, and then eventually it just took off and vanished. Maybe not unlike the blue light that we had seen on our way into the Chapada. So here we were in the middle of this beautiful uh, you know, national park. Our guide is telling us about the UFO that followed him, and we're seeing the garlic and all the, the charms and things. And I joked with Hafaella, I said – I wonder if the garlic is there to keep the ovnis away. But another interesting little tie-in here. Back in the 1970s, there was a a very well-known UFO kind of wave that occurred in northern Brazil around the area called Colares. And when this was underway, a lot of the locals who experienced what they perceived as attacks, because they said that beams of light sometimes would shoot out of these objects and crack the skin and leave little abrasions, they called these UFOs the ovnis, chupa-chupa. Chupa, of course, anyone who knows about Chupacabra will actually and right. so they all actually ascribe a sort of vampiric – so the Chupacabra UFOs that were seen in the 1970s by the residents around Kolaris came to mind because I'm seeing the garlic. And again, that might be my own interpretation, but I did I did wonder, you know, what are they actually – uh, presenting these charms against. What are they concerned about? No doubt people say that strange things happen in the Shippata, and our own guide said he'd seen one of these so-called ovnis. So it was a really interesting experience talking with people and seeing their cultural ideas about what these objects might be. Now, one final interpretation, again, noting the similarity geologically to the areas of the Limville Gorge and Brown Mountain. Again, the Limville Gorge known for its waterfalls, for its abundance of quartz and granite and everything, and there are these ball-lightning-like UFOs that appear there. One might interpret the UFOs seen around Chapada dos Viaderos as possibly being a manifestation of Earthlight, similar to what occurs at Brown Mountain, or what occurs at Hestel in Norway, and a lot of other geologically rich and seismically rich sites throughout the world. That's just a speculation on my part, but it's one possible mechanism for explaining some of the sightings.
1: Why the cultural difference between Brazil and the United States or even Canada when it comes to the whole UFO ET phenomenon and their transparency, the way they treat it in the media without, although it is it is changing somewhat up here, but in the media in South America, they don't treat it in a mocking fashion. And the military, people speak out regularly in the military and in the government about What's happening down there? Why the difference, do you suppose?
2: That is a long and difficult uh, question, although I think that there are answers. I'll, I'll tell you this. In the 1970s, when the situation at Colaris was underway, the Brazilian military, they sent the Air Force up there and they carried out a study that was known as Sal Prato. Prato actually means plate. And because there's not a direct equivalent for saucer, again, sal Prato meaning Operation Saucer. And they had... That actually got footage filmed. And the Brazilian uh, archives uh, also now, I mean, the military released a number of these files. And I know that AJ Givard, who I mentioned earlier, who regretfully I wasn't able to meet with while I was down there, but I certainly hope to meet in the future at some point when time allows. He's, of course, very busy. Everybody's got things going on right now. But. AJ has traveled uh, to the archives and has actually viewed some of their documentation on the Kolaris affair. So, yes, their military had been very involved, and they do make available some of the information they collected on the phenomena to the public. In the United States, yes, things are a little different. And I've seen some commentators in the English-speaking world talking about how there seems to be a disproportionate amount of UFO activity in the United States, or at very least interest in it. And some have tried to argue it's a culture-bound phenomenon, to which I say that's nonsense. Anyone who has looked at the history of the UFO phenomenon is well aware of the fact that South America has a very, very rich history of involvement. Uh, Jim and Carl Lorenzen, who ran the APRO organization back in the 1960s and 70s, they actually wrote a book. I think the book was published maybe in 66 or 67. But it was called UFOs Over the Americas. They had been receiving so many reports from South America that they traveled there themselves to, you know, assess the UFO situation there. And much as I saw while I was there in towns like Alto Parizo, I mean, they are hyper aware, very interested, very accepting of the UFO idea and its cultural, uh, you know, uh I guess, their interest in it and their relation to it in their culture. That might be a way to say it. So to say it's something specific to North America, I say nonsense. Mm. It's as prevalent down there, and many people describe this phenomenon and having had experienced it. Um, As to why in the United States we tend to kind of keep it at arm's length, I think the simple answer is this. At one time, our Air Force also actively investigated UFOs, whether or not they did it uh, in the most – scientifically efficient way is another question but with project blue book the longest running systematic ufo study that was carried out by a military organization really i think anywhere in the world what we saw was they handed off their reports first to the rand corporation uh, or i'm sorry they actually handed the uh, reports off to Battelle memorial institute had them do a analysis in the 1950s then in the 1960s uh, they tasked the university of colorado under edward u condon with studying it Anyone who's familiar with the history of the Condon Committee and its uh, alleged analysis of UFOs knows this was rife with problems, and maybe we can get into that here in a moment. But uh, I think that the long-term effects of the Condon Committee's analysis of the Air Force's UFO data from Blue Book, it had a very negative impact. The military and the government in general has long attempted to kind of keep UFOs at arm's distance after that and as a result of it. And we're just now, like you mentioned, getting back around to a point where scientists, the military and the media and really just, you know, the general populace are starting to say there really is a there, there. This long dismissed subject really warrants our attention, does it not?
1: All right, Micah, we'll take another quick time out, come back and discuss more on the UFO ET Phenomenon, Micah Hanks, MicahHanks.com with us here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Seren. Don't go away. Micah, you mentioned the Condon Report and how uh, that was kind of a, a wet blanket that was thrown on the, the whole UFO ET uh, forum. That lasted maybe you know up until recently, twenty seventeen, perhaps December twenty seventeen, and how one um, sort of military or government sponsored UFO study after another seemed to be designed as a wet blanket to to uh, uh, suppress uh, or discourage further discussion. Did you want to talk some more about what what the Condon report? set out to achieve and its long-lasting effects in more detail
2: i certainly would and uh, to preface that briefly again when ufos arrive again culturally speaking in 1947 i would contend that they've been around much longer we of course can look back to the second world war and see the foo fighter reports there were a number of reports between the turn of the century 1900 in 1947 uh, involving UFOs, but they weren't called UFOs. They weren't even called flying saucers. They were known by different names, but again, these aerial phenomena and that time-tested you know, tested and true uh, human experience of seeing things in the sky that we can't explain, I mean, that had been going on for a long time. But in 1947, right after the war, when Kenneth Arnold sees flying saucers over Mount Rainier, And the press ascribes this new name to them, and it becomes this media sensation, much like, for instance, Bigfoot would a few years later when a hoax carried out in California led to new cultural cultural awareness being attributed to a phenomenon that I would contend had actually existed for quite a while. Uh, The UFO thing really kind of explodes after Arnold's observation. And then people in the military are saying that they're seeing these. I mean, there were some rather – um, concerning incidents at actual military uh, facilities where these objects had been seen passing over controlled or near-controlled airspace. And so, yeah, the newly formed U.S. Air Force, apart now from the U.S. Army, they took it very seriously. They said, okay, if right here in the years after the World War that we just emerged from, we are seeing what appear to be objects and thereby what seemed to be technology under intelligent control... I mean, do the Soviets have something? Was this a Nazi technology that was captured? Is it our own? And if so, you know, who is creating this? I mean, it was a real question, a real problem. So in the early years with the Air Force's project sign, yeah, they took it really seriously when they couldn't find any feasible explanations. And it was first insinuated that maybe we are looking at something other than human. And therefore, the only thing we could even conceive of is maybe extraterrestrial. Top brass in Washington didn't like that. Uh, Then the reformation of the U.S. Air Force project to evaluate these phenomena under Project Grudge took a very negative tone. They were being very dismissive. Probably nothing to see here. Again, attitudes changed around 1952 when UFOs were seen over Washington, D.C. And people are saying, okay, look, if people are really seeing these things and they are now flying over our nation's capital on some of the most controlled airspace anywhere in the country, we really have to treat this seriously. This almost received national tasking. But before the CIA would really look at the possibility of looking at this as being a real security problem, an intelligence problem, they said, we've got to get some scientists to look at this. And this led to the Robertson panel, where essentially a CIA-sponsored panel of scientists looking at what UFO data was on hand at the time, led to a pretty familiar conclusion. Well, we don't see much here. Probably birds, probably other things, but definitely not extraterrestrials. Nothing to see here. Let's move along. Now, Little did many of the investigators at the time who were looking into the UFO issue know that the Air Force had also supplied close to 3,000, maybe more, sightings they had on time to the Patel Memorial Institute and had them conducting a a statistical analysis of these UFO sightings. Uh, There had been, in other words, numerous attempts to try and look at this and see what we were dealing with. But that brings us back uh, around the end of the 1960s to to the Condon situation. What ended up happening there was the U.S. Air Force tasks Edward U. Condon and a group of investigators, many with no background in UFO research at all, they tasked them with trying to evaluate these Air Force reports after these numerous attempts over the years. And unfortunately, it was a biased study from the outset. There was a memo that was leaked around the time, actually during the time that the study was being carried out by Robert Lowe, one of the uh, really kind of the top guy under Edward Condon himself and the only guy who had access uh, and and clearance to look at classified information that the uh, committee would be reviewing. And Lowe, in his memorandum that ended up being leaked, essentially said, you know, the trick here is going to be to make this look like an objective study. But to the scientific community, we want it to be clear that we're a bunch of non-believers with no expectation of finding any saucers. Uh, Many of the group members ended up resigning. Some were excused. Uh, It was reformulated right there toward the end. And then when the actual report is released, Condon had written the introduction and then the conclusion. Uh, There were some investigators in certain cases that were examined that were somewhat sympathetic toward UFOs. But in some total, Condon and his group who had gone into it (sighs) expecting to find nothing, they conclude predictably that, well, there's nothing that science benefits from. Through studying UFOs, we can't really justify taxpayer dollars being put behind this. Our advice as far as what to do with UFOs, do nothing. And following suit right after the report was released, the U.S. Air Force, which I think in truth had been looking for a way out all along, and maybe that to an extent one could argue had even been coordinated somewhat with Condon and the biased researchers who went into this and came to the conclusions that they seem to have had, you know, from the outset. Yeah, the Air Force followed suit. They canceled Project Blue Book. And the long-term cultural effect is what we have seen up until 2017, where we began to see a bit of a, a shift in tone. All right. Well, let's find out on the other side whether that shift in
1: tone, December 2017, New York Times article uh, whether that will be long lasting whether it'll stick this time Micah Hanks my guest MicahHanks.com back with more in a moment don't go away <laughs> Micah Hanks stays with us. So we talked about the Condon Report, the cancellation of Project Blue Book, how everything seemed to change in 2017. In fact, there was a, a substantial change in the way that the media finally started to address this issue. Is it different this
2: time? That's a very fair question. Because, again, there were periods, even after 1968, with the conclusion of the Colorado UFO Project... And after 1969, with the formal closure of the book, Trist served in 1973, I mean, we saw a UFO wave that resulted in some of the most significant incidents, I think, that have occurred really over the last several decades. You know, we had, uh, you know, the coin UFO encounter where a group of military servicemen flying in a Huey helicopter actually are um, approached by a large object in flight, having almost a near collision with this object, a lot of other unusual things happening. We had two men in Pascagoula, Mississippi claim that they were actually taken aboard a egg-shaped object, or what some might actually liken to a tic-tac in shape by today's standards, that they were taken aboard this craft and examined briefly, and they were very disturbed. Uh, went to the police that very night. There was a secret recording made in this sort of interrogation room where they were just being interviewed by the sheriff there in the town, but he left the room thinking these guys are going to spill the beans when I walk out. Left the tape running, they didn't know it was being recorded, and uh, Hickson and Parker, the two men, continue to describe this harrowing experience and uh, yet again, I'll point out nearly religious terms. Um, I think Calvin Parker, who was a young man at the time, only in his 20s, was on the recording heard saying, oh, God, oh, God, I know there's a God up there. Despite periods over the years where we've seen tremendous surges in UFO interest, it has never managed to really garner the kind of attention and the serious attention both from scientists, from the military, from Congress – like it has since 2017. So, what shifted? and Why does it appear to be sticking now, or will it? Well, I would argue that in 2017, first we had a paper of record, the New York Times, reporting on a. At the time, this was new information, but you know, in years advance of uh, in advance of this 2017 article by Leslie Kane, Ralph Blumenthal, and Helene Cooper. Keep it in mind, <laughs> Helene being the actual uh, you know Pentagon reporter there for the uh, for the uh, New York Times. Uh, they're reporting on the fact that for several years prior to that, there had been a Pentagon study or group you know, called the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program uh, led by Mr. Lou Elizondo, and they had been looking at advanced aerospace threats, one uh, term that the Pentagon uses for what we might call UFOs or UAP. When this appears in the New York Times, people go, my gosh, our government really has been looking at UFOs like we all suspected all along. And now we have the New York Times seriously reporting on this. And again, the effect was – Uh, To quote Ivan Sanderson when he uh, talked years ago about the term abominable snowman when it first appeared in a newspaper, he said the effect around the world was like that of an atom bomb. I would argue that tip appearing in the New York Times was similar. People took notice. And that momentum has continued to build because, of course, we've seen the U.S. Navy, uh, under the cognizance of the Department of the Navy, establish a UAP task force, which has really, I think, in recent months uh, gotten gotten a lot of attention for its analysis of UAP. They issued a report to the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, and even though it was only nine pages, six pages of which actually contained – information. The rest were just a cover page and then a little glossary or two and an appendix in the back. But in those six pages, it essentially says, look, there are several categories of phenomena we're looking at. Airborne clutter, possible technologies from another nation, natural phenomena. But whatever the different varieties of UAP that we're looking at are, I mean, we must acknowledge there are some things in the sky, you know, more than 100. I mean, close to 140 or so instances of objects that have been observed by military servicemen and women that cannot be identified." Identified to date. Uh, We were able to identify one as being like a large deflating balloon, but I mean, all these other things, we don't know what they are. And so we need to continue to look at this. Now, what we have seen in recent days, and in fact, all of the momentum and interest, Richard, uh, led me and a group of colleagues of mine to actually found a publication, and it looks at a lot of different issues in science, defense, technology, but the debrief, the debrief.org is the website. Uh, My initial idea, looking at all of these ufo developments was i want to have a website that can treat this subject not like water cooler not like you know uh, speculation it needs to be addressed and reported on in the same way that anything in science or defense or in technology is reported in the news kind of like what the new york times did in 2017 the problem i knew was that eventually the media is going to get tired of all the ufo sensation where will this be Where can we continue to report on this? And so uh, with my colleagues, Tim McMillan and M.J. Benias, uh, last uh, December, we launched thedebrief.org. And the debrief is a website that looks at technology, aerospace, defense, science, astronomy. But we also regularly report on developments with UFOs. And what we've seen in recent weeks is that with the bills, and if they indeed are passed in their current form as they have been voted almost unanimously by the Senate and the House – With the Intelligence Authorization Act, both last year for fiscal year 2021 and now looking ahead to 2022, we are seeing Congress continue to try and ensure access to information gathered by intelligence community agencies on UAP to the UAP task force. What does that mean? We're trying to make sure that the Navy's UAP task force has access to top secret information that spy agencies are gathering and have been gathering on UFOs. And they're supposed to uh, periodically, I think once every quarter, provide a report to Congress. Now, we're waiting to see, of course, if there are going to be public versions of these reports made available, like the uh, preliminary assessment that that was delivered to the ODNI back in June. We're also waiting to see, and there was some discussion about this, I, think in, I believe this appeared in the Defense Authorization Act, uh, but there is discussion of actually replacing the UAP task force – with an actual agency within government that is specifically tasked with looking at UFOs. This would be the first time we had such an organization looking mm. at UFOs specifically since Project Blue Book. So the most important thing, two things that I've seen in recent days as a result of everything we've seen since 2017 and what Tim and MJ and I and our fine cadre of writers over at the debrief have been reporting on, mm-hmm. is that not only do we see Congress back in the game and trying to work to legislate so that information on UFOs is being studied and is being reported on within government and not just being kept by the intel agencies. But as a result of that, and specifically as a result of the admission that appeared in the preliminary assessment, that there are objects in our skies that we don't know what they are, we can't identify them, they should be studied, well, scientists are saying, and when are we going to get access to that? And if we don't get access to that, then should scientists be doing our own independent study? And so many scientists, Avi Loeb of Harvard University, uh, Dr. Chris MP in Arizona. I mean, many astronomers and scientists are now saying, hey, we should be looking at this, too, to have Congress, to have our military, to have scientists looking seriously at UAP and saying we need to study this. It's a tremendous shift compared to what we've seen in decades past. The co-sponsors
1: of this National Defense Authorization Act you just mentioned, Marco Rubio was one the other, I think, was a congressman from Idaho, Representative Adam Smith, if I'm not mistaken. I could be wrong about that. But regardless of individuals involved, what do you think motivated them? Do you, do you think it's possible that in either or both cases they've had an experience that they haven't stated publicly?
2: I think that the experiences that many of them have had is that they have received briefings, and again, I can only go off of what they have said publicly. But again, you mentioned uh, Senator Rubio from Florida, and you know, Rubio has said, "Look, we've been getting briefings, you know, classified briefings on this for decades, you know, or at least for the better part of the last decade. This has been an issue that many in Congress have been aware of. But with all of the attention that's been put on this, we also uh, think it's incumbent upon us to to look at it and to make sure that we legislate in ways uh, that will." Ensure that our government is looking at this. I think that there is definitely a lot of pressure, I think would be the right word, but it's not a negative kind of pressure. I think it's a very, maybe momentum would be a better way to term this. But I mean, you know, guys like you and I, people, you know, again, citizens are writing to their congressmen and women and they're saying, look, this is important to us. We want you guys to look at this. And so I know Marco Rubio, in addition to having been briefed about this in the past, but also seeing the media attention, the military action, and also the advocacy among many in the public sphere, I think they feel compelled to try and you know push for this uh, within Congress. Uh, we also have seen Adam Schiff and others who have been involved in these uh, bills, uh, writing on the websites of these, um, uh, you know, in accordance with the bills and their release. But at the, uh, the websites actually of the intelligence uh, committees respective to the house and the Senate, uh, Adam Schiff, like Rubio and others have also written statements saying, you know, we do take this seriously. We are looking at it. And so there are a number of members of the house and Senate who have publicly stated based on what we've been briefed about, you know, again, we haven't been shown the bodies or anything like that. We've been shown data that is being collected that shows that there are objects we can identify in our skies. And they've all been very clear about saying, uh, we don't know what they are, but they could represent a foreign technology. If we can't identify them and they are entering our controlled airspace and potentially representing a threat to our members of the military and really to the American way of life, we need to be looking at that. Now, briefly, a lot of people take issue with the word threat. They don't like the T word because they say nothing about UFOs has ever shown you know to be threatening. The fact that our military keeps, you know, fear mongering, you know, this is just nonsense. Uh, Point taken, but I would say that, again, if our military continues to look at this as a potential threat, that doesn't mean that UAP have ever been overtly threatening anything, I would argue, though, that can enter controlled military airspace and we can't identify it. Of course, they're going to term that as a threat, and I personally don't really see the controversy, although, again, Leslie Kane – who had co-authored the fantastic article in 2017 and has continued to write for the New York Times. She also has been a contributor, along with Ralph Blumenthal, at the debrief. Very glad to have both of them writing for our publication. But you know, as she wrote there in her article a few weeks back at our site, uh, it's time to move the narrative out of threat and into science. And I do agree with her. I know why the military terms it as a potential threat, but really we need scientists looking at this. I want science personally applied towards study of UAP. Well, congratulations on your latest initiative,
1: Debrief.org. Debrief.org. Micah, always a great pleasure. Thank you so much for this.
2: Always my pleasure. Again, safe travels, my friend. Let's do it again real soon.
1: Micah Hanks, MicahHanks.com. Coming up next, martial artist, author, survivalist, Stefan Verstappen, How to Build Communities. Back with more in Hour 2 right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't Go away.
0: Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarat on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home,
1: your long haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well appointed basement with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. And once again, I'm coming to you from Kalamata in southern Greece. This program was recorded earlier today. This hour, we're going to talk about how to build a community in times of crisis, in times such as these that we're living through right now. We need to learn to rely less on the government and more on ourselves and our neighbors. Stefan Verstappen is the author of The Complete Guide to Building Communities. The book will be released this month, October the 25th, so next week, actually. uh, Formingcommunities.com is the website, formingcommunities.com Stefan, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. It's been a while. How are you? I'm doing pretty good, uh, Richard. It's great to be back. It's been uh, about two years since we last spoke, and I've missed you. Well, likewise. We had just entered into COVID, <laughs> I believe, last we spoke, and uh, you began writing this crowd funded book, the complete guide to building communities where are we at in terms of i mean you you made some pretty dire predictions in that book of what was going to happen to society and how covid was going to be used to 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 push this this agenda uh, and and the dire need for people to stand up take notice and start building communities in order to survive what's coming where are we at now Uh, 18 19 20 months later in terms of this agenda and and, and what you predicted well where we are is
3: um, you know all those uh, grim conspiracy theories we were accused of voicing two years ago have all come true we predicted all of this stuff. Everybody, Anybody that understands how government works and power works and has an understanding of history knew that this is where it was going to go and that it's never going to get better. Governments never relinquish power. So once they had the power to control every small detail and facet of your life and 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 the power to track your every movement and now we see in there in the states the power to monitor every financial exchange do you think they're going to let go of that power of course not that's what they do they they you know the the people that run this world Richard, Richard, I know you know this are psychopaths and uh, psychopaths want control they just uh um that's all they dream about it's it's not even about money everybody says oh this cooties and uh, the kool-aid which is my code words for cooties is a certain disease that i'm not allowed to speak because if you talk about it you're immediately demonetized and banned from every social media so instead of calling it the uh, what it really is. I just call it the cooties. That was a term we had when we were kids. Oh, you got the cooties. No, you do. And the uh, Kool-Aid is their injectable medicine that they are forcing on everybody in the world. They're forcing it on people. Everybody must drink the Kool-Aid. And the reason I use the term, the code word, Kool-Aid, is because that's what the people were forced to drink in uh, Jonestown under the Reverend Jim Jones, who took his followers to Honduras. And when things started to get ugly, he had them all commit suicide by drinking arsenic mixed with Kool-Aid. And that's exactly what our governments are doing to us now. They came up with the phony cooties. And now they're forcing everybody to drink the Kool-Aid, which is, in effect, a form of poison. And the the purpose of this is the same. It's to kill a lot of people. I know this sounds very radical. It sounds extreme. And uh, a lot of people don't want to believe that, you know, your own government wouldn't do this to us. But I beg to differ. There is a term. It's called democide. And democide means death by your own government, or more correctly, genocide by your own government. And if people think that your own government isn't out to murder you, to genocide you, then take a look at the 20th century, where the victims of democide are estimated to be anywhere between 250 million to 350 million. These are the number of people, hundreds of millions of people, that were killed by their own governments. So don't think that it can't happen here because we're more civilized. Uh, The people that they killed back in the the 1900s and on up, they were very civilized people. I would say, in some cases, even more civilized than we are today. And they killed them. So this is what what we're facing. So... We are heading towards a collapse of Western civilization. Now, I, in the book, The Complete Guide to Forming Communities, which is the one you referred to earlier, that's the working title, and it should be out by the 25th of this month. I'm still working on it. I'm up to 450 pages so far. I still have more work to do on it, but it's you know 95% complete, so I think I can... You know, burn the midnight oil and get this thing finally finished. Because I've been working on it for two years. It's been a bigger, bigger project and a bigger headache than I ever imagined it would be. And the reason for that is because I wanted to include everything that people would need to know to form their own communities. You know, all the the legal aspects and then the psychological aspects, the group dynamics, how to start it, how to run it, how to register it, how to incorporate it, and and, um, how to hide it from the government. So, you know, it just kept ballooning, 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 and I'm up to 450 pages now. But that will be out at the, uh, you know, close towards the end of this month. In the meantime, I created an online course an educational course through the university of reason or the other term is autonomy which is an organization founded and run by richard grove who is also the founder of the tragedy and hope website and they approached me it was last christmas they approached me said listen you really need to do a course on this subject material Because we agree that the way we are going to survive the collapse of Western civilization is by forming autonomous, self-reliant communities. And so I hummed and hogged for four months, Anyway, six months. (laughs) Anyways, I finally completed the course and it's up and it's available. If you go to my website, uh, I have a new website now too. It's called formingcommunities.com. And if you go there, you can find the course. And uh, I'm going to put up a countdown meter on there, when the book will be released, so you can purchase the book. Anyways.
1: Formingcommunities.com. And the book is The Complete Guide to Forming Communities. Stefan Verstappen, my guest. It's interesting that uh, we are already seeing the construction or the formation of a parallel society as uh, the uh, Western civilization is being divided into the experimental group and the control group. Uh, I think you and I are, I'm assuming, are both in the control group. (laughs) We're going to avoid the uh, the (laughs) V word here. Um, Yes. So those in the control group are now Realizing that they have to d- to build a parallel society if they want to function, and so we have homeschooling. Uh, this is something I talk about on my my daily afternoon show on Saga Nine Sixty. We talk about homeschooling um, once a week on the on the program, and uh, it's generating a lot of interest. Uh, we have we have parents now who are forming alternative athletic associations for their children because. They can't play baseball, soccer, uh, uh, basketball in, in minor leagues, even though it's not been mandated by the provincial government. These leagues, I don't know what this is all about, but they're taking it on themselves to, to enforce vaccine mandates for 11-year-olds to uh, to 18-year-olds. So we're already starting to see this uh, in, I guess, in, in, in a small way, Um but obviously, you know, athletic leagues and, um, and homeschooling, those are only two small aspects of, of a, you know, society or civilization. You also talk about forming communities, uh, something called a, a food co-op. I find this fascinating. Now, we don't have to have a vaccine. Sorry, I said it. We don't have to have uh, documentation to, to shop in a grocery store yet, but that could come. Talk to me about forming a food co op. Well, a uh, food
3: co op is one of 17 different types of mutual aid communities. And mutual aid, I, I just mean that people work <laughs> together for a common goal and for common benefit. And my book also covers homeschooling, how to set it up, how to run it, how to fund it, uh, how to operate it. Because, um, you know, I personally believe that the public education system is a disaster. Uh, um, they don't teach children anything of value anymore and um, so, you know, I think sending your children to public school is child abuse I mean, you're how many more videos do we have to see of teachers promoting communism Uh, just recently we had all those videos of angry parents confronting the school boards because they had stocked their libraries the libraries that are meant for 12 to 15 year old kids they've stalked them with pornography illustrated i saw the illustrations absolutely disgusting what why would a school stock pornography books but not just pornography pedophilia pornography because the books talk about young boys having sex with older men i mean this is absolutely madness and it was only by accident that the parents found out about this and and they protested and what was the reaction what was the reaction of the school board and the government in 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 america they labeled those parents domestic terrorists so there you go that's why you got to get your kids out of the school now how, how do you do that um you know most Uh, families don't make enough money for the mother to stay at home all day educating their children. Usually uh, in in our society now because of hyperinflation and and the cost of living, you need two people bringing in an income just to afford a home and a car. So the solution is uh, that's my poos cat uh, Buffy That's all right. And she's very sorry about that. No, she's old and I love mind. it. I love it. And then she wanders around and she doesn't know where she is. So she calls out and I have to tell her where I am. You know. okay. So listen, we need to uh, find a way to get our kids educated away from the government. The government is poison. Everything it touches turns to crap. That's what governments do. And well, um, forming a homeschooling co-op is one of your best solutions. You just need to get together with two, three, five, ten families, and you can start your own co op and you can share the burden of educating your children. Um, As you know, Richard, because we've talked about this, so that will be in the book.
1: Um, The same thing with. Sorry, just on that note, Stefan, I just wanted to point out that now homeschooling has never been easier because. Uh, We've already been experimenting with, uh, you know, virtual learning when the schools were closed down. So parents are now starting to get used to the idea of their children at home. Now, you don't want to just replace going to public school with, you know, sitting in front of a a computer. But it's never been easier because now we have many, many teachers who are suddenly looking for work because, again, they're unwilling to be coerced into taking the Kool-Aid, as you say, so they remain in the control Mm -hmm. group, they're now looking for work. Now uh, prospective homeschooling parents can reach out to this pool of unemployed teachers and bring them into the homeschooling co-op system.
3: Yes, yeah, exactly. And um, there's so many options. And and even something like the, uh, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with the, the forest schools, that they operate in Germany.
1: Yes, kindergarten. They send the kids out into the woods to yeah. get dirty and climb trees and walk through the water. Yeah.
3: I know, I know. That I, I love that idea. I think it's brilliant. So we have lots of options now. Like you said, you can do some of it online. But again, we've got a lot of teachers that don't want to take the Kool-Aid. And so they have quit the profession and, um, you know, you bring them into the co-op. Be, listen, we're, we're we're paying fees anyways. Like, look at look at what it costs you to t- send a kid to Montessori. And by the way, Montessori started out as a home schooling co-op, and. Uh, Um, The thing they did differently was that they provided a really good education. And now 100 years later, because they they started that back in the 1900s sometime, 100 years later, it is the gold standard of education for K to 12. And uh, people are dying to get into Montessori schools, and they pay a lot of money to send their kids there. But we can recreate that ourselves for a fraction of, of the cost of sending your kid to Montessori. Mm-hmm. And that money can also hire good teachers, and um, you have so many options available. So, you know, yeah, you got to get them out of that public school system. And what you're talking about, uh, athletic clubs, again, that's in the book as well athletic clubs, how to form them, how to run them, how to operate them. Because part of, <clears throat> part of what we're going to need to do is recreate our own medical system as well. Um, as we can see now and here in Canada our medical system is destroyed um, I, I listen to people from all over the world I like uh, Vernon Cole the doctor there in uh, in England and he talks about how their hospital their uh, NHS system has been absolutely destroyed you know, on purpose with the, with the new regulations and and the incompetence and, and the expenses and so when the civilization collapses and we are in the middle of the collapse that's why um, you can't go to a hospital that's why you can't get a doctor that's why you can't uh, go to a walk-in clinic anymore because it's booked it's full they're not operating you need a a, a uh, you need to take the Kool-Aid before you can even step in the door so part of what we need to do during the collapse is recreate our own medical system and that's going to be in the book. First off, there's ways of funding your own health insurance. And again, it's done through a co-op. So a co-op for those people that don't know exactly what it is, it's it's a little bit complicated to write it all up and to register it, but it's a form of incorporation and therefore it protects all the members, the same as you would be protected if you were a shareholder and a for profit corporation co-ops can or cannot be non-profit it depends on the people that started up and run it how they want to do it do they you know is there going to be a little bit of extra profit from their activities at the end of the month and do they want to shovel that back to the members in form of dividends or do they want to reinvest it into the company and continue to run it as a non-profit up to you but i explain all the benefits and disadvantages of either of those Uh, legal functions but a co-op is interesting in that every member of the co-op is a customer so that's why you belong to a co-op because you're a customer it's basically a glorified buying group and a buying group is in the book as well and a buying group is simply something whereby you and a few other people pool your money so that you can get a discount on something you all want so uh, a a co op therefore allows everybody to be a member and partake of the goods or services that that co op will
1: provide well, how does that work in a and public health is- in a in a public health uh system where we have one health care provider, the government, and we have one healthcare care payer, which is also the government how do, how does a a medical co op work Do you hire a a surgeon do you hire a specialist. Well, you can do that, but more immediate is you can buy
3: a, a group insurance policy. You can get extra health insurance, and um, what happens is that all the members of the co-op are therefore buyers of a health insurance policy. So it's like a company group uh, a policy. And here in Canada, I, I'm not a hundred percent clear. I'm, you know, my market is basically towards Americans. Because I find Canadians, don't get me started on Canadians, (laughs) Richard, I find them really lacking in in courage and in in initiative. But, um, for example, I I know the story with Stephen Molyneux, I'm sure you've heard of him. Uh, when he was diagnosed with cancer and he tried to get treatment here in canada and he couldn't so he went to the united states and he had to pay for for uh, um, medical uh, treatment in the u.s now if we were to do the same thing if we were to buy you know a group insurance policy at a discount through a and it's called a health insurance co-op through a co-op then you can get you know they, they they changed the rules, but you used to be able to get private health care here in Canada, but if you need to go over the border into the United States to get private health care or you need to go to Mexico to get private health care, then oh, that's what you're going to have to do because you can't get it here anyways because they' screwed it up, they've destroyed it, they've sabotaged it, and it's all done on purpose. They don't want you to get healthy because again, the purpose of the government is mass genocide, and they're going to accomplish this through a number of different means, one of which is
1: the Kool-Aid. All right, I've got to jump but in the here, other uh, means... Stefan, We've got to jump in and uh, take a timeout, yeah. come back. Yeah, I so. Stefan Verstappen is my guest, and the website yeah. is formingcommunities.com, formingcommunities.com, back with more of our conversation right after these. Martial artist, author, survivalist, Stefan Verstappen is here. Formingcommunities.com, the website and the book, The Complete Guide to Forming Communities. So we were talking about co-ops. Talk to me about a food co-op and how that would work. We're seeing, you know, in inflation just getting ready to take off like a rocket ship on rails. Now more than ever, I think we need to pool resources in order to secure our food supply. Exactly. So a food co-op is, again, it's a co-op,
3: so you're, you're incorporating, and the members of the co-op are um, shareholders in that incorporation. What I like about the incorporation is that everybody gets exactly one vote. So it's not like somebody that, you know, whoever started the co-op suddenly becomes the president, and they're the boss, and they can issue executive orders to all the other members. You know, that doesn't happen. This is a A pure democratic uh, organization. Everybody has one vote and um, they can elect a board of directors to run things, but it doesn't mean that the board of directors are the bosses by any means. So food co-op is, again, it's similar to a buying group and you can do this as a buying group, too. You don't have to incorporate as a co-op. It's up to the people themselves who are forming these communities what kind of legal structure you think would work best for you. A co-op is good for a number of reasons. One, you can buy and sell property as as an incorporated entity. You can also open bank accounts in the name of the co-op. So this makes it a little bit easier to handle the finances. You can do this as an unincorporated community as well. You just get together with 10 people, five people, 15, and you agree to pitch in so much money every month to buy what you need at a discount. And um, so the money is just going to be cash or debit or whatever, and you're just going to have to keep track of it yourself. But if you're looking for funding from the government or if you're looking to um, get donations from the public at large, um, then you're better off to get a a bank account where all of this goes through. Now, food co-op, is uh, basically a buying group whereby again you pool your resources and you buy the food at a discount direct sometimes direct from the producers from the farmers and uh, sometimes direct from the wholesalers and then you there's two ways to do this you can either just distribute it distribute the food that you've bought and this is i forget what they call it i think they call it a box uh, a box system where, you know, you put the food in equal amounts in, in the box and all the members come by and pick up a box of food. So if it's produce, you bought the produce directly from the farmers, you know, whatever it is that they had, the green beans, the tomatoes, the squash. And, you know, you, you, you dole it out for whatever you spent for it and into the boxes. And then every member comes by and picks up their box of fresh produce every week. But you can also, if you're a food co-op, if you're incorporated, you can get the equivalent of a retailer's or a wholesaler's license, and you can buy some of your stuff directly from the wholesalers. Either way, you're going to be saving minimum 20% on your grocery bills and up to 50% of your grocery bills and in like you said now with the hyperinflation and and uh, it's becoming ever more difficult to get decent food and to buy enough for your family having a 20 to 50 percent discount will go a long way to feeding your family and so those are the benefits of forming a food co-op
1: the the larger the co-op the larger the savings potentially
3: absolutely because it's like everything else you know uh, i walk into a store i said listen i got hundred bucks to spend. And I do this sometimes, you know, I'll pay you cash. Don't, don't charge me tax. Oh, oh, don't, don't let the government hear me say that. I I use that approach with everybody. You know, if, all they can do is say, no, no, we have to put it on the books. I said, okay. But obviously if I go to somebody and say, I got a hundred bucks to spend, they go, yeah, well, I don't know. I, I can't give you a discount for a hundred bucks. I said, I got a thousand dollars to spend. Well, I can spend it with you or I can go down the street to the other guy can you give me a discount for a thousand dollar purchase guaranteed they're going to give you a discount and if you go to them and you say listen i got five thousand dollars to spend i'm representing 25 families we're all going to buy these groceries and uh, we put their money together so this month we're going to spend five thousand dollars for the groceries and uh, for all the members of the community what kind of discount can you give me and that's how you approach
1: it it's it's a great idea um What about fuel? We're looking at natural gas prices, home heating fuel going through the roof, and we're also due for a very harsh winter, we're being told. You put those two together, a lot of people are going to be choosing between putting food on the table and keeping their house at a comfortable temperature. Can the co-op system work for purchasing home heating fuel?
3: Absolutely. Um, and again, it's going to be, it's in my book. I've already written a chapter on that. And I include a case study from England, uh, whereby a group of people, they all lived on the same street. They all uh, have to buy uh, heating fuel, fuel oil for to heat their homes. And previously, they all just, you know, filled up their tanks individually and paid the, the premium rate for that. But they formed a Buying group. Now they didn't incorporate as a co-op. It's not always necessary to incorporate as a co-op. Sometimes, if it's going to be the, if it's if you want to buy the same thing every couple of months, then you don't need to go through all the business of incorporating and writing a charter and bylaws and registering it with the government. You simply have an agreement between you and your neighbors, and you can write that agreement out in a in a one-page mutual aid agreement whereby it says, you know, we, the undersigned, uh, dedicate, uh, you know, to buy our home heating fuel together with the rest of the community. So then what they did was they they bought a truck, you know, because they, you know, they, they bought a whole container truck full of fuel at one time and had them go up and down the street and fill up everybody's tank. And they were able to get like a 25% discount on their home heating fuel. So you can stay in your home, buy your home heating fuel by yourself. Your neighbor does it too, and your neighbor down the street does it too. Everybody's paying premium prices to get their, you know, their, uh, uh, their tank filled up individually. But you just buy the whole truck full. You buy the whole, con- uh, the whole tanker full of oil, and you have them go up and down and fill up everybody's uh, uh, fuel. And if you buy the whole tanker truck at one time, well, you get a 25% discount.
1: Okay, that's fine if you're, getting, if you're heating your home with petrol. What if it's natural gas that comes through the street, under the street? What do you do then?
3: No, well, then you're screwed. There's no way to get a discount on natural gas.
1: So maybe think about switching back to uh, to petrol well it's heating oil right it's not petrol. heating oil sorry heating oil yes
3: or you can go propane and you can do the same thing with propane like, like instead of uh everybody everybody buying you know um, a 50 pound tank uh well you buy 150 pound tanks and get the discount on that and distribute it to those tanks but unfortunately richard i can't think of a way of uh getting a discount on the natural gas because it's pumped in when i uh, talked to people and, you know, I do consultations for people that need to get up to speed on their preps on you know, and their plans how to survive what's coming. I recommend, and especially here in Canada, that you have at least two or three ways to heat your home. Because if the power goes out—and I say if, but I mean when the power goes out—your natural gases are going to function anyways. You need you need electricity to start up the uh, to spark up the uh, furnace, and uh, they could cut off the natural gas as well. So you better have two other methods of heating. Your home, and the two other possible methods of heating your home is uh, a wooden fireplace, and uh, and again, in that case, you can again work together with your neighbors and buy you know cords of wood in bulk from a supplier, and again negotiate for a discount. The other way to do it is to have propane heaters. You can also have propane electrical. Ge- generators for when the power goes out so propane is great for running both heaters and generators and again you can probably buy if you work together as a community discounted propane cylinders and then the third option is kerosene i have a kerosene heater right here in the the closet in case of an emergency and the emergency is the power goes out the heating goes out the electrical power uh, electrical baseboard heaters don't work but i got the kerosene heater and kerosene is still uh, fairly inexpensive and again if you wanted to work together with you know five or ten families you could buy kerosene in bulk at a discount now you can also get electrical generators that would work on kerosene so i'm planning for basically the book is how to survive when the civilization collapses and you have to do all this for yourself you have to supply your own food or source it or buy it you have to find ways of sourcing your own medical care we talked about insurance but what you said earlier is also very possible and that is we fund our own hospitals all right like our own
1: clinics i gotta jump in we'll pick up on that when we come back stefan stopping. The uh, complete guide to forming communities, formingcommunities.com. Back with more in a minute. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Stefan Verstappen stays with us, The Complete Guide to Forming Communities. Go to formingcommunities.com to order the book. There is also a course available at formingcommunities.com. We've been talking about forming co-ops in order to buy in bulk, reduced prices, buying wholesale, and so forth. Further to our earlier discussion on health care and the collapse of public health care, you talk about funding our own hospitals. How would that work?
3: Well, this is what our great-great-grandparents did. They formed, and this is before the Rockefeller American Medical Association allopathic poison control system was initiated. And before we had public health care, before we had OHIP, before we had the Canadian government supposedly funding our health care, before there was uh, um, Obamacare, before there was... uh, um, well, what's that other one that the you know, the emergency health care they have there in the States? Before any of that happened, this is in the age of our own grandparents. And if you're a bit younger than me, then believe your grand, great grandparents. What they did was they formed mutual aid societies, also called friendly societies or fraternal societies. And these were basically a co-op. It was not incorporated as a corps, but that's how they operated. And uh, you may have heard um, some of the names of the old fraternal societies, like the Moose Lodge or the Elk Lodge or the Foresters, even uh, groups such as the Rotarians and the Lions Clubs. These were all mutual aid societies. And the primary purpose of all these societies was to provide medical care for their members. And what they did was they charged their members the equivalent of one day's pay per month. And for that one day's pay per month, all of their medical costs were covered. Their dental costs were covered. And it became so successful. You see, we pay so much money to the government in taxes and they're supposed to provide that for us. But governments are corrupt. What You know, for every dollar you spend to the government to pay for health insurance, the government steals and whittles away and diverts 97 cents of that dollar. And therefore, you know, we have a crappy medical system because all the money we pay into it has been funneled off and siphoned off and given to the insider cronies. And none of it actually goes to pay for medicine. But when our great-grandparents ran these organizations, there was no $3 million salaries for the CEOs and the organizers. Every penny went to provide for their medical costs. Now, it became in the beginning, what they did is they would hire one doctor to take care of the medical needs of the entire community. So let's say you had 100 people. That one doctor, his full-time job, whether he treated someone or not, because he wasn't charging by the hour, he got paid every month the same amount of money every month, enough for him to have a happy, healthy life. And all he had to do was take care of those 100 people. Now, here's an interesting thing, is that the incentive for that doctor is to make sure his patients stay healthy because the healthier they were the less work he had to do he gets the same money whether he goes goes to treat somebody or he stays home and plays golf he gets the same money now the doctor would rather stay home and play golf so he wants to make sure his constituency his patients are healthy now contrast that with the modern medical system run by the pharmaceutical companies where a thing like a cure or a treatment is forbidden, you know. They they don't want you to get healthy because it's not profitable for them. <laughs> Their profit incentive is in keeping you sick. And lo and behold, look at all the illness and sickness and suffering and misery and all the expenses for <laughs> pharmaceutical drugs and prescriptions. And well, because it's profitable. And in the old system, where the mutual aid society would hire the doctor, the doctor would perform what we used to call home visits. I remember I was like five years old and I had an ear infection. And back in those days... That's how far back I go, Richard. I'm an old man. But back in those days, the doctor would come to your house. He would have a little black bag. And when I had my ear infection, he would go up to my bedroom. I would be laying in bed and he would examine me and uh, treat me. And then he would go on his way. That's how medicine used to work A 100 in twenty years ago. Stephanie, I gotta jump worked.
1: in here again. Uh, here's the other yeah. thing, uh, we're gonna take a time out, but just like with teachers, now you have a pool of teacher uh, of doctors and nurses. That refuse to be coerced, refuse to take the the, uh, the Kool Aid. Maybe they've had their licenses revoked for speaking out uh, by the various colleges of physicians and surgeons. Uh, so right. they are they are available to join your community. Back with more of our conversation on forming your own communities with Stefan Verstappen right after these. Don't go away. Stephen Verstappen stays with us. Formingcommunities.com and the book is The Complete Guide to Forming Communities. So we were talking about Uh, mutual aid societies and and how our ancestors basically built hospitals and provided medical care for the people in their communities where you would hire your own doctor. Uh, You wanted to finish off with that before we move on.
3: Sure. So they started off by that's how they began. So you you get a hundred people together, they put in a day's worth of wages every month, and uh, you hire your own doctor. And in those days, the doctors would just come to your house. Maybe see, you've seen some of those old black and white movies, you know, where they say, "Oh, call the doctor," and then the doctor rushes <laughs> to the person's home. Um, I know this is unheard of in modern society now, but that's how it used to be. But they started off like that. But because it's so effective and efficient to crowd fund your own medical care, that within a year they started building their own walk in clinics. And within three years they started building their own hospitals. I mean, these are people that built their own hospitals by donating. Or uh, paying into their community, at, you know, the equivalent of a hundred bucks a month. What What do you pay for health insurance in the United States? You know, three thousand dollars a month. These people did it for a hundred dollars a month. They built their own hospitals that was open exclusively to their members. But it didn't stop there because of the efficiency of, you know, pooling your money and because of the efficiency of not having the government in there stealing 95, 97 percent of every penny you've pooled. Not only did they build their own hospitals, they built retirement homes. They built in, uh, intensive uh, um, uh, 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 Assisted care homes, and it didn't even stop there. They went on, but they had so much money left over because it's effective when you handle the money yourself. You spend it on what you need, and you don't spend it on corruption. That they had excess of money, so that they could now create their own scholarships for for the students of their members, and they even went as far. The good fellows there in Wisconsin, they bought property and built a park with picnic gardens and a bandstand and they held dances and concerts. And, you know, it was just amazing what you can do when you work together, community and pool your money. So, that's what our great grandparents did. Can we not do that? Of course we can. It's not that complicated. But you have to work together, and you work together, and you can accomplish that. So in the beginning, work together. Hire a doctor, even if you hire a doctor to come and uh, uh, open up, you know, a, a space at the local library, and see, you know, once a week he'll see, you know, ten, twenty people from your community. Make sure you're okay. You can start off that way. You're getting medical care. And if you need blood uh, uh, um, tests and you need MRIs and x-rays, you can always book that through a hospital or through another clinic anyways. But from there, they went to building their own hospitals. And we can do the same. And not only can we do the same, we need to do the same because the medical system is an abomination It's been taken over by the Rockefeller allopathic doctors that only know how to poison and cut. And nobody gets cured in that system. Whereas you have doctors whose best interest is to cure you. The more of their patients they can cure and treat, the more money they make and the less they have to work. So the
1: incentive is there. All right, so let's, let's say that you want to form a community and you have, uh, let's say you start off small, a dozen families and their members, and you may have a community of a hundred people, which, you know, that could be a, a small village. Uh, although you're Absolutely. scattered, you might be scattered over across, you know, the Halton region and, uh, Peel region and, and Markham Stouffville, um, region. How do you keep the community together? How do you, how do you administrate it? All
3: right, so this is the big problem, uh, Richard. First of all, I want people to understand what it is we're trying to do. The ship of state, our current society, is the Titanic. We've hit the iceberg. We're taking on water. The stern is already 45 degrees out of the water. We're going down. If you stay on the ship, you will die. And by the ship, I mean... Everything that the government used to do, unemployment insurance, welfare, uh, food stamps, health care, and even law enforcement, all of that is going to go away. And we need to head for the lifeboats. Now, I want you to think of forming a community as a lifeboat and that lifeboat will keep you safe and keep you alive while the ship sinks that's why we need to do this and we need to do it right away now like with any lifeboat you're going to have to make sure that you have the right number of people in the lifeboat Mm -hmm. for example Mm -hmm. um you know you're almost to capacity in your lifeboat and now we have you know a 450 pound purple-haired social justice warrior are you going to let her on the, on, the, on the boat? She's going to sink the boat. You can, if you don't let her on, you probably have room for two or three other people that would provide, that would do, pull their fair share and, and uh, be an asset to the community. Then you can let them on. But if you let in just one psychopath, just one lunatic, just one selfish person son of a gun they will destroy your community so part of the process and part of the big problem with this is you need to screen your members now i recommend there are different ways to screen them one of the things i recommend that you you use to screen them is that they need to have a prerequisite in order to join your community for example, in the book, I talk about another form of community, which were artists' communities. Um, this was a big thing back in the 1850s, 1860s, you know, um, you know, with uh, Walt Whitman and um, his poetry has inspired a lot of the artists in those days to move to the country. Now, they didn't live on a commune. I'm not talking a commune. Communes don't work. Uh, so forget about buying, you know, a 100 acres and we all live together. No, that doesn't work. But what the artists
0: <clears throat> did is they all
3: moved to a similar region, like a town. So they bought houses or rented houses in the same town. Now they worked together. <coughs> and this is how I recommend we do it as well. And that is, it's a, what I call in the book, a decentralized community. Now, a centralized community is everybody lives on the same farm and we all grow and and live happily ever after, except that never happens. But a decentralized community is, and I recommend that everybody lives within 20 miles of each other. 20 miles because that's how far the average person can walk in one day if there's an emergency and you got to get to somebody's house to get fed and and get some medical care or whatever at least you can walk to your next (coughs) member's house and that's what the artists did they work together but what they did is they pooled again using like a co-op system or a buying group they pooled their money to buy their groceries which they distributed to all the artists. They pooled their money to rent a gallery space where they could all exhibit their artworks. They pooled their money to get their medical care. So something like an artist community was actually very effective. But to get into the artist community, you had to submit a portfolio of your work meaning you know you had all your sketches and your paintings and your sculptures and everything that you've done and then that portfolio would go to sort of like a membership board or an admissions board and they would take a look at your art and see if you qualify as a professional artist if you didn't you didn't get into the community we need to do something like that when we form our own communities we need to see the person's background what are your skills and i I have a number of ways of doing that. I have like a an admission form that people would fill out, which would say like you know I would say I'm I'm really good at growing a garden. I'm not so good at first aid, but I'm good at uh, wilderness herbs. But I'm good at building. I'm good at fixing. I'm good at building uh, um, alternative forms of energy, solar panels or windmills. And they would go through the list of all the possible skills and attributes that they could contribute to the community. And you would have members fill
1: that out. And that's all in the book. The, the, these admission forms and, and so forth. Yes. All in the book. Okay. we just we got, about, take, we got about 30 seconds here. That's why it's taking me so
3: long. Anyways, we need to screen these people out. And there's different ways that we can do that. And it's all in the book.
1: Fantastic. All right. People take note. Get ready. Prepare your lifeboat. Stefan Uh The book again is The Complete Guide to Forming Communities, formingcommunities.com, the website. Thank you again, my friend. Be safe, be well, all the best.
3: Thank you, Richard.
1: All right, that's it for me. Just a reminder, Don Jeffries will be our guest host next week. The week following, Ali Siadatan with Rabbi Jonathan Kahn. Should be a great couple of shows. Until then, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed. And nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper. Proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home.